Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. This podcast is designed to hold space for honest conversations. From purity culture to faith, sexuality, relationships, identity, culture, deconstruction, and more. My hope is to look doubt in the face, be curious, seek God, and ask meaningful questions to address any elephant in the room with openness, nuance, and grace. I won't pretend to be an expert and definitely don't have all the answers. And though it may feel easier and more comfortable to exist in the black and white, I invite you to discover God with me in the gray and unexpected spaces. So whoever you are, whatever you do or don't believe, you are welcome here and have a seat at this table. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective Podcast on iTunes. So each week when a new episode drops, it'll download straight to those devices. And while you're at it, if you feel so inclined, leave us a five-star rating and written review. It would be so helpful to get our message out there. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and a special thank you and shout out to Newsstand Studio at One Rock Center. Thank you so much for sponsoring and producing this episode of the Refined Collective Podcast. You can follow along with Rockefeller on Twitter, at Rock Center NYC, or over on the Instagrams, at Rockefeller Center. Also, a shout out to my Patreon community. Y'all have been such a gift to me over these last few months. I feel as though the community that we're building is getting more and more sweet. It's getting deeper and richer. I love the conversations we're having. I love the questions you're asking. So I would love to invite you to join our family at patreon.com slash the refined collective. That's patreon.com slash the refined collective. It's $5 to join. And in that process, you get invited to our monthly free Zoom coaching calls and the exclusive videos that I put on just for Patreon. Recently, I just dropped a video called The Rise and Fall of Hillsong, a cautionary but also familiar tale in response to the Discovery Plus docuseries that just released on the Hillsong Church and what's been happening over there. So check it out. And speaking of processing faith and doubts and all of that, we are stepping into a series on deconstruction. Recently on Instagram, I asked you if you considered yourself in a season of deconstruction. 76% of you said yes. And then I followed it up with a question, what comes to your mind when you think of deconstruction? And there was as many different answers as there are denominations in the Christian church. And it got me thinking, wow, what are we talking about when we talk about deconstruction? How do I know if I'm experiencing deconstruction? If I start deconstructing, will I lose my faith altogether? These are very real and human questions, questions that I have asked myself, obviously questions that you're asking. And so I thought, let's intentionally move through these questions as a community. 
And here's why I've kind of avoided this topic, even though everyone and their mom knows that I am deconstructing my faith. I just don't feel like an expert. I don't feel like I can give you, hey, here's three steps to deconstruct well. Here's 10 hacks to make sure that by the end of this process, you're going to be a better Christian than you ever were before. I just can't do that. I am still in process. And also, the more I process life and faith and all of it, the more I wonder, did I ever really have three tips to do anything or six hacks for this? I'm just not sure that that's how life and humans and faith work, even though it makes for very sellable sermons and Instagram quotes and book sales. So I can't offer you that. I can't offer you all of the answers, but what I can offer you is a hand to walk the journey with you. I can hold space with you. I can create a safe community for you to process and be where you're at in the journey. I can offer context. You know me, I read like a thousand books. I'm like the research queen. I can offer you context and resources and I can ask meaningful questions with you. One of my favorite quotes that you've heard me say many times on this podcast is by Madeline Engel. And she says, what becomes less important is finding airtight answers and learning to ask the meaningful questions. That's what we're going to do here. My first job out of college, I worked for a nonprofit. Two weeks after I graduated with my Bible degree from a Southern Baptist University in Texas, I moved to San Diego, California to work for this nonprofit. I was coming off the heels of a season where, yeah, I was a Bible major. Guys, I was the most high and mighty person I knew. I was obnoxious. Me, with my Bible degree in hand, would look at the me today and think, well, that girl is a girl that needs saving. I was reformed in my theology. I was a staunch Calvinist looking to get into a fight with anyone who wasn't on board with Tulip. And you can Google that if you don't know what that means. I felt right. I felt vindicated in my rightness. I felt proud of the rhetoric I had to defend my faith. And I felt as though anyone else that had any sort of Christian faith that wasn't my brand of Christianity, that wasn't my version of Reformed theology, was a Christian faith not to be trusted. I was better than. Maybe they were Christians, but they definitely weren't legit. They definitely didn't have my respect, let alone anyone who was a quote-unquote unbeliever. Yet here I found myself at this nonprofit living in an intern house with 50 people from all over the United States, working for a common goal to expose atrocities in northern Uganda and to raise advocacy, awareness, and funds for children who had been abducted to be child soldiers and sex slaves. Now, I was high and mighty in this house because I was the legit Christian, and yet there were people in this house that were agnostic, atheist, Mormon, non-religious, universalist. In our training, one of the biggest things that stood out to me was, oh my gosh, that atheist over there is living more like Jesus than anyone I have ever known in Dallas, Texas, or went to Bible school with or did ministry with in college. That was interesting to experience. 
And then my internship was to live out of a van and go on the road and basically speak every day to thousands and thousands of young people about what was happening in Uganda and to raise advocacy, awareness, and funds. My territory of the U.S. with my teammates was Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Idaho. I think that's all of them otherwise known as Mormon country, which I had no idea that's where a lot of people in the LDS community lived. So for three months, I was living out of a van or sleeping on cots or college dorm rooms or people's homes. And the majority of those people were either Mormons or LDS is what I'll refer to them from now on, LDS or Christians, but Christians with the shakiest theology, in my opinion. Yet, Three months on the road consistently, day in and day out, day in and day out, I experienced people who lived more like Jesus than anyone I knew back home. People who either were atheist, agnostic, Mormon, or everywhere in between. And I didn't know what to do about that. That felt really disorienting. I felt super right in my beliefs but what was the fruit of my rightness? The fruit of my rightness is what I was starting to see is that my rightness was creating a group think where everyone just kind of stayed in our church community back at home and made everyone else wrong and yet didn't really do anything proactively to be compassionate towards the vulnerable or to seek justice for the oppressed. Now, on top of that, I, every day being in the nonprofit world, was having meaningful conversations with people a part of other causes, other organizations. Every single day for three months, I was becoming bombarded with, have you seen this documentary about Burma? Have you read this book about what's happening in North Korea? Have you seen this documentary about sex trafficking in America? Every single day, some new atrocity that I had never known about before in my privilege, I was becoming awakened to it. And as you know, once you see something, you can't unsee it. And once you know something, there is responsibility to that. I felt that my faith was beginning to crumble under the weight of the pain and injustice I was seeing in the world and under the threat I felt from all these quote-unquote other people from the them, I was the us, so the them that were living more like Jesus than myself or anyone I knew. And by the time my internship ended and I headed back home to Dallas for the summer, my faith was hanging on by a thread. I remember that summer I was coaching tennis every day and saving money to go on a trip to Uganda to see the staff on the ground in Gulu and to see some of the projects we had been advocating for. And every day I woke up and I would read the paper and I would learn about another new atrocity, another new oppression. I'd cut it out of the newspaper and glue the clipping into my journal and I would weep over the injustice. And day after day, I would say, God, I still think you're real, but I don't know if you're good and I don't know if you're active and I just really don't know if you care anymore. This was the first real season of complete and utter doubt that I had experienced since I became a Christian. 
And as the trip to Uganda became closer and closer, I thought the last thing I can do is go on this trip. If I go to Uganda and I see with my own eyes these displacement camps, if I look in the eye a young woman who has been abducted from her family and trafficked, my faith will be dead. Faith as I know it will be over. And yet I somehow found myself boarding a plane to Uganda a few months later, sure about one thing. The one thing I knew for sure was this. When I leave Uganda to come back home to America, what I have believed about God will be dead. I was hopeless about my faith and about what I would see and the God I would have to be confronted with in a war-torn country. I can look back now and see that I was in a massive experience of deconstructing everything I had learned up until that point about God, myself, others, evil, oppression, justice. And yet when I was in it, I had no idea what was happening. All it felt like is that my house was on fire and everything was crumbling around me. And the moment when I hit my faith crisis, I felt as though to my Christian friends, I became the black sheep. I became the one that was quote unquote struggling. And so they distanced themselves from me. And I can look back now and see that I most likely distanced myself from them as well because I felt misunderstood. I felt completely isolated. Raise your hand if you want kids one day. Or raise your hand if you're curious about having kids one day. Yeah, I'm raising my hand too. But if you're going to make informed decisions when it comes to having kids, you need information first, right? Modern Fertility makes it easy and affordable to test your fertility hormones right at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and get your personalized results within 10 days. You'll get insight into your hormone levels, your ovarian reserve, aka how many eggs you have compared to other women at your age, and other important fertility factors. You can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse to review your results and options for next steps. They also have a video explaining how to go through the entire process, and their customer support team was always incredibly helpful at any time I had a question. I actually tested my fertility with Modern Fertility last month, and it was super easy, and I also took them up on their one-on-one consult call with a fertility nurse. It was so helpful to have an expert walk me through my results. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash refined. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or even thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. So get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash refined. That's modernfertility.com slash refined. So what are we talking about when we talk about deconstruction? How do we know if we're experiencing it? In the moment when everything feels like it's on fire, our nervous system is so overcome that it can be hard to discern, okay, this is actually what's happening. You're just trying to survive the fire. 
Well, historically, let's talk about what deconstruction has meant. In the 1960s, there was a French philosopher and who is now known as the founder of the deconstruction theory. His name is Jacques Derrida. I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly, so forgive me. In essence, the deconstruction theory posed by Derrida is a form of literary analysis to oppose current structures in place. For example, it takes two binary or opposing ideas like black and white, wrong or right, believer or not, us versus them, and looks for a more fluid or abstract meaning. What Dorita proposes as a deconstruction theory is to get curious about what truth lies outside of the structures. So this was primarily used in philosophy, interpreting literature, and texts. And ultimately, Dorita argued ultimate truth is kind of unknowable because the full meaning of a text or thought or word or action is ultimately unknowable with its meaning perhaps constantly shifting. So Dorita is kind of saying we can't really ever know what is true ultimately because you can keep deconstructing it and breaking it down and breaking it down and breaking it down to the nth degree. And then once you get to the nth degree, you break it down some more. And this is, I think, what most Christians are afraid of and what most pastors and leaders are afraid of when they see their congregation, their friends, their family members, their loved ones entering into deconstruction. It's what Matt Chandler was referring to months ago when he had a soundbite from a sermon go viral when he said, if you are deconstructing your faith, you never were a believer. Now, he's pulling on Calvinistic ideals, and he's also pulling on the definition of deconstruction put out by this French philosopher which isn't unfair to do, but also what we have to acknowledge is that there can be an original intent or definition of an idea, i.e. deconstruction, i.e. evangelicalism. What evangelicalism meant 60 years ago means something very different from what it means today. For more information on that, you can read the book Woke Church by Eric Mason, The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Demoy, and After Evangelicalism by David Gushy. Using the same definition of deconstruction from the 1960s is also like the person who goes around saying, well, gay doesn't mean same-sex attraction. Gay means happy, and I'm not gonna let those liberals take the original definition of what this word means. That might be what it meant forever ago, but to pretend like the word and its use in its context hasn't shifted is inflexible as it is arrogant and completely in denial about the current cultural moment. Only recently have Christians taken the word deconstruction to mean something specific towards dismantling and probing for truth inside Christianity. Now, what Brian Zond, an author and pastor, says in his book, When Everything is on Fire, which I will quote quite a bit in this episode, he says this, For Dorita, a text can be endlessly deconstructed because there is no such thing as a fixed meaning. Deconstruction seems to be a methodology that has no real end game. At times, it feels like an invitation to endless cynicism. So what is your end game with deconstruction? Is deconstruction for you your big F you to the entire system? Is it throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Or 
Is it a pathway to truth, growth, and maybe perhaps deeper faith? You see, 76% of you are currently deconstructing. It's hard for me to believe that all 76% of you are on a path towards completely walking away from your faith forever and living in a cycle of endless cynicism. From what you have told me and even my own journey, this is more a search for truth so that I can rebuild my faith on a more firm foundation. So what are we talking about when we talk about deconstruction? What I propose is that deconstruction is not destruction, but that deconstruction could possibly be one of the most constructive things you could ever do for your faith walk. Deconstruction is not a complete annihilation or loss of your faith. It is not an F you to the Bible, Jesus, your community. Perhaps, as Zond says in When Everything's on Fire, we can recognize that not all structures of belief are the same. Some deserve to be condemned. Some need to be condemned. Some deserve to be condemned. Some need to be deconstructed. And some are not worth saving. But other structures of belief are worth risking everything to try to save them. Renovate what needs to be renovated. Throw out what needs to be thrown out. Deconstruct what needs to be deconstructed and even let some of it burn. But don't burn it all down. So what if deconstruction, instead of being an endless cycle of cynicism and a complete loss of faith, is actually a timeout, a pause? What if deconstruction is saying, wait a second, how did I get here? Why did I get here? What are the stories, narratives, and beliefs I've received as gospel truth? And what have these narratives taught me about God, myself, and others? Who are these stories benefiting and who are they hurting? Are these beliefs even working? What is the fruit of these beliefs? And what are these beliefs rooted in? Fear, condemnation, shame, us versus them? Or love, hope, wholeness, abundance? Is the message of your belief system good or bad news? Deconstruction is giving yourself and others the permission to pause and say, like Ruthie Lindsay says, just because you know a story by heart doesn't mean it's true. Deconstruction is having the courage to be willing to do your own damn work. It's saying, okay, my pastor told me that. This Bible study leader may have said this, and instead of just absorbing their interpretation of the scriptures or truth or Jesus or Christianity or what it means to be a person of faith, you're saying, thank you so much for offering me what you have learned. I'm gonna seek for myself. I'm gonna search the scriptures for myself. I am going to ask the questions myself and I'm gonna look through what you said and use my own discernment and figure out if this is really true. Stepping into a space of deconstruction is stepping into a journey where you're taking ownership and autonomy over who you are, who God is, and what is the source of truth. It's being willing to take ownership over the space you're taking up in the world. Now, I boarded this plane to Uganda and I brought two books with me. One was called The Good News About Injustice by Gary Haugen and the other was A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. 
Now, this book by C.S. Lewis is a series of his journal entries that he wrote after his wife passed away. It's raw, it's rugged, and it is a human completely coming undone. In fact, this book was so provocative. It was so grief-filled that C.S. Lewis's publishers first released the book under a different name because the publishers didn't believe that the general public could withstand a theological giant to be crumbling under the weight of grief. You see, C.S. Lewis had already written Problem of Pain. He was already a respected theologian of his time. He had already written Mere Christianity, this airtight case for faith. And yet, when the shit hit the fan in his life, all of that theology, all that right rhetoric flew out the window, and he grieved. That book for me on my plane ride to Uganda was as if I had been in a dark room, a pitch black room in the loneliness of my doubt and finally seeing someone strike a match in a different corner of the room. It was my first spark of hope on my journey. Well, I land in Uganda. I meet with the two other girls I'm on the trip with and we drive in a crowded bus from Kampala all the way up to northern Uganda and Gulu. And we spent several weeks being in the company offices, going to displaced camps, and just exploring the culture and learning from people and listening to experiences. And one Sunday... We didn't have anything planned, so we grabbed a few bikes at the house we were staying at, and we went on a bike ride. And we were kind of just letting ourselves getting lost in this town, which I look back and think, man, that was not really safe of us. Three white girls from America just traipsing around a war-torn city. But we're biking around, and we stumble upon this secondary school. This secondary school that we stumbled upon was filled with young high school girls. And most schools in northern Uganda, the children live at because they primarily are orphaned because their families and parents have been killed or abducted in the war. And that's just the way they do school there. School is the safest place for these children. So we stumble upon the secondary school and it's Sunday. So there's no classes, and all these girls are outside playing and just hanging out and call us over, and instantly we become fast friends with this group of girls. We're talking, we're all sharing stories, and we're there for maybe an hour, and all of a sudden, girls start leaving the group and congregating to this one area of the school. Pretty soon, every girl in our group was going and asking us to come with them. So we did. And we were confused because we thought, okay, this is Sunday. This isn't a class. There are no teachers around. What is happening? And yet all these girls are filing to this space on campus and sit down in the grass and in the dirt. And one girl gets up who couldn't have been more than 11 years old. And she said loud and vibrantly, God is good. And all the girls replied in unison, all the time. And then she says, all the time. 
and they scream, God is good. And instantly after that, one by one, girls get up and start praising God and thanking God for God's provision in their lives, God's protection over their lives, the food in their belly, the clothes on their body, the roof over their heads at this school. They're singing worship songs. They're dancing. And no pastor, no teacher, no adult is telling them to do this. They're just doing it. It's like God is the oxygen, the air they breathed. They weren't complaining that they had no money, that the only clothes they owned were the clothes on their back. They weren't saying, God, where are you? Why are you permitting so much evil in this world? No, God was the air they breathed. And I sat there so aware of my whiteness and my privilege, and I sobbed. God, how can they even say you're good? Don't they know? Don't they know what they don't have? Don't they know how you're not showing up in their lives? And yet the longer I stayed and witnessed this divine moment, something shifted in my heart. We said our goodbyes after everything was over and we biked home in silence. We didn't really know what to do with what we had just experienced. And a few days later, I was boarding my plane back to the States and I realized, you know, I was right. Faith as I knew it before this trip is dead. What I believed about God, my rightness about things, is dead. This was the nail on the coffin to my faith. But with death comes resurrection. You see, I didn't get answers to almost all of my questions about evil, about the goodness of God. And in that, I got to have a bodily experience in community with other people that showed me even when I don't understand how or why or the nuances or the Bible verses or any of the things, that God somehow can be good and real and at work in our lives. You see, for me, that experience was the first of many times now of me stepping towards the people, events, spaces, questions that might blow the whole thing up. You see, I had to get to a place where I let myself say out loud the things that I wasn't allowed to say out loud as a Bible-believing Christian. And yet, as I walked boldly towards the questions that might unravel the entire thing, those are the places that I met God. That's where God became bigger and more expansive and powerful and loving than I ever could have imagined. So deconstruction for me has been death, resurrection, death, resurrection, death, resurrection. When you are in the death, when you're dying a thousand deaths in your deconstruction journey, take heart because resurrection is on the way. Bradley Jurisak says, the same sun that created your eyes now also illuminates them and everything around you. You're not leaving this existence, but you're seeing that it's bigger and brighter and more ablaze with glory than you'd ever imagined. 
the whole world becomes Moses's transfigured shrub. So what is deconstruction? It's giving yourself the permission to walk towards the thing that might unravel the whole thing while trusting that that is the place and space that you have the possibility to encounter a God bigger and more expansive than everything you've been taught up to this point. You are not alone on this journey. Now, a few reflection questions I would love to offer you as we close up this episode of what is deconstruction and how do I know if I'm on it? Here are five questions that I encourage you to journal, process, tease out, and even invite friends and community into as well. Number one, what narratives about God, yourself, and others have you come to believe is true? Number two, where did those beliefs come from? Who taught them to you? How did you come to accept them as true? Number three, who do these beliefs benefit and who do they harm? Number five, what has the fruit of these beliefs been? There's this idea in the New Testament that people will know we are followers of Christ because of the fruit of our lives. What has the fruit of your beliefs been? And two helpful resources for me on this journey, Matches in a Dark Room, have been the book Faith Unraveled by Rachel Held Evans and When Everything is on Fire by Brian Zond. All right, I hope that this has been supportive to you. Next week, we are gonna continue the deconstruction journey. And in it, we are gonna talk about what is doubt? (laughs) And what if I'm not a Christian anymore? What are the different stages of faith? And what is a helpful framework to navigate deconstruction? All right, until next time, talk to you soon.